The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. So, in America, when the sun goes down, and I sit on the old broken-down river pier watching the long, long skies over New Jersey, and sense all that raw land that rolls in one unbelievable huge bulge over to the west coast, and all that road going, and all the people dreaming in the immensity of it, and now I know by now that children must be crying in the land where they let the children cry. And tonight the stars will be out. And don't you know that God is Pooh Bear? The evening star must be drooping and shedding her sparkler dims on the prairie, which is just before the coming of complete night that blesses the earth, darkens all the rivers, cups the peaks, and folds the final shore in. Nobody, nobody knows what's going to happen to anybody besides the forlorn rags of growing old. Think of Dean Moriarty, I even think of old Dean Moriarty, the father we never found. Think of Dean Moriarty, I think of Dean Moriarty. author Jack Kerouac, reading from his classic travel book, On the Road. He was accompanied on the piano by the talk show host, Steve Allen. It's not the kind of show you see much anymore, it seems. It's also not the kind of book you read, or not the kind of moment for a book like that. With its wild freedom, the American vista wide open and waiting to be discovered, the world of stealing cars and hitching rides and hopping trains, and the background of post-war America, with people everywhere returning to the stable lives of college and jobs and having babies, of quiet nights with their families, watching the newfangled miracle called television, and a band of beatniks who opted out of this demographic and said, here we are, ready to live ready to love, ready to burn, to burn white hot, loving jazz and poetry and novels and freedom, ready to go on the road in the best sense. We're headed on the road this week, so to speak. Mike Palindrome is here. We're going to look at great travel books. We're also going to talk to Mike about his recent trip and his summer reading list. We have a good long conversation, so we're going to skip the usual introduction and get right to it. So pack your bags, charge up your accessories, hang on to your ticket, and do whatever else you do when you go on a journey. I'm Jack Wilson, and this is a special traveling edition of The History of Literature. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. 
The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is our old friend Mike Palindrome, the president of the Literature Supporters Club, who is back from a European literary vacation. We'll talk to him about that, about summer reading, and great travel books. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. So let's start with your trip. How long were you gone, and where did you go? I was gone for 16 days and spent uh, eight days in London and seven days in Stockholm, and Mm. one day, just kind of roughly one day traveling. Yeah, and let's start with London. So you went to the theater when you were there? I did. I went to the Globe Theater um, oh, and boy. saw As You Like It mm-hmm. and um, learned all about how an American actually was instrumental in recreating the Globe Theater. It, it's a reproduction of the old Globe Theater, which used to exist you know, in Shakespeare's time and then was burned down and rebuilt and then burned again and fell into disrepair. And then in the 1980s, an American uh, film producer named, I think, William Wanamaker uh, couldn't believe that the Globe Theater wasn't up and running, so he helped finance the rebuilding of it, and it's actually rebuilt as the Globe Theater used to used to be. So they mm. there there's no bolts, no nails; it's all wood joinery. Mm. And, and they, so <laughs> even though it even though it burned down twice. Yeah, it, so it means more <laughs> pillars. So actually, uh, uh, yeah, one of my a lot of the seats. If you try to buy ticket, if you buy tickets online, it'll warn you that there's a pillar in your way. Mm-hmm. And I, I kid you not, I switched seats with my wife at one point in the intermission. Her seat was smack <laughs> behind a pillar, <laughs> and it was it was quite hard to see. Couldn't see anything. Now, do they still? I've actually been there, but I can't remember if they if you can stand where the footlings used to stand. Is that still an open area? Yeah, the groundlings. Oh, yeah, the groundlings, right. Yeah, it's still there. It's five pounds, and you can stand there, and if you show up early enough, you can get a beer and go right up to the stage and lean on the stage, hmm. which I think could make the three hours uh, doable. Otherwise, yeah. it was tough standing there, you're, and if it rains, you're not allowed to open an umbrella. Oh, because it's open air. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, because people can't see it. In fact, we were in the second tier because our friends warned us that in the first tier, you could actually be blocked right, by the people standing. And I'd have to say maybe about, I thought I saw maybe like 10, 15 people leave after like a, uh, like an hour. <laughs> I, I think I think if you're in for two hours, you're going to stick around for right. the last hour. Right. And it's unfortunate because it was a it was an amazing production of ah. As You Like It. It's the Globe 
Globe Company, which is Mark Rylance is part oh, of. Um, right, right. He he wasn't there, but it's a it's a year long ensemble company. Um, they're probably some permanent members. They're doing Hamlet later this year. It was hilarious. I mean, and as you like it, I forget if you poo pooed as you like it on one of our earlier podcasts. Yeah, I think I took out all of Shakespeare's comedies. What I <laughs> what I said, what I said was that you didn't need to read them. I think attending uh, a performance okay. is still okay, but I just didn't want people to feel like they had to plow their way through the comedies in written form. So, as part of my summer uh, travels, I read, I reread as you like it, mm. and I also read, yeah, and I I I also read. I recommended a book from a Bard professor who's like a ex professor of a friend of a friend. It was Shakespeare. It's called Shakespeare's Fest of Comedy: A Study of Dramatic Form and Its Relation to Social Custom by C. L. Barber, and I highly recommend it. Mm. There, it's about ten page essays on uh, his comedies, and so you learn that. Um, As You Like It was written about seven years after a very similar play called Rosalind. Mm. The only difference, the the differences are are huge, but the the, the big difference is um, the fact that it's a little more cynical than the play Rosalind. Mm. So there's a character, Touchstone, who's kind of like an idiot fool, in Shakespeare's As You Like It that was not in Rosalind. And he kind of stole the show, the mm. guy who played Touchstone. So this is, I just wanted to read you this little bit. Touchstone is asked by his friend, like, how do you like being a shepherd? And Touchstone says, truly shepherd, in respect of itself, it is a good life. But in respect that it is the shepherd's life, it is not. In respect that it is solitary, I like it very well. But in respect that it is private, it is a very vile life. Now, in respect <laughs> that it is in the fields, it pleases me well. But in respect it is not in the court, it is tedious. As it is a spare life, look you, it fits my humor well. But as there is no more plenty in it, it goes much against my stomach. Hmm. So, I mean, Touchstone, I think this is Shakespeare's genius, is Touchstone is such an important character and as you like it and it's hard to imagine as you like it without him but that's that's what Rosalind was seven years before so Mm, right I love those I love the examples when seeing what Shakespeare added or how he changed things from the original source and made it better yeah it was it was was really one of the highlights of our trip to London and um, I mean there's so much to do in London eight days I think you could spend easily a month there Mm -hmm. but Eight days, or it, it's just enough to really enjoy it and whet the appetite and then look forward to coming back. Yeah. And then you went to Stockholm and you visited the Nobel Prize Committee? I, you know, I didn't, we didn't go to the museum because uh, Stockholm is incredibly expensive and mm. we just balked at the price. But we did go to the town hall, which is um, a banquet hall in addition to the city's offices there's no really no mayor of stockholm there, there's a council and there are two people who are kind of like de facto mayor but the town hall has a great interior courtyard called the the blue hall which is not blue but it was meant to be blue 
but they scrapped that idea. But that's where the Nobel Prize dinner is every mm. year. Yeah. So, so we took a tour there, and it was it was great. I really recommend if you're in Stockholm. I don't know about the Nobel Prize Museum, but go to the town hall. Well, they're, now they're having some disarray with the Nobel Prize for Literature. Uh, they're not awarding one this year. I'm wondering, did you offer up your services as president <laughs> of the Literature Supporters Club that you would help straighten things out for them? I, they might view you as kind of a rival. You uh, Maybe did you go, did you wear a disguise or anything? Were you worried? You know, when I was there, I thought, I have to say, I thought about Dylan a little bit, that he, he, he decided <laughs> not to go, and he sent someone in his place, right? Yeah. You know, he sent someone he, to accept the He wrote the a prize. speech, yeah. Yeah. And then he did didn't he go do to the, the dinner. Did he do the speech on video, or? Yeah. I think he performed the speech somehow. He, uh, he's, he's close to 80, I think, so traveling might be kind of a, a burden. It, it it sounds like a fun dinner. It's it's about three hundred people, and um, I, I learned that you, every person is allotted. It's very efficient. Every person is allotted fifty seven centimeters <laughs> of of space <laughs> of elbow room. But if you're a VIP, like the ex winners and the Swedish royal family, you get sixty two centimeters. Ooh, yeah. So wow, that's a good. That's a that's a, uh, like a imagine, reason to win one. Yeah, imagine five extra centimeters on the plane next yeah, time you're on exactly. a plane. <laughs> <laughs> so. They don't do anything. They probably fly coach over there. <laughs> so did you go to any other author houses or graves or anything when you were on this tour? You know, we never went on um, up to the arp- archipelagos because uh, Strindberg actually... Um, I think he stayed in one of the, on one of the islands and everyone loved that he was there until he wrote about the people on the island and then he was not (laughs) welcome back. It was that petty. They just said like, you can't come back here. So, uh, and what did you read on this trip? So, you know, in London I read as you like it and, um, uh, the bookshops in London are are incredible. Um, mm-hmm. You know, yeah. When the Lon- we went to Hatchards, which is an old nineteenth century bookshop, um, went to London Review Bookshop and Daunt Books, and so I was reading Shakespeare, and I also was I picked up a book uh, called Think Like an Anthropologist. So I was, uh, and I was thinking it's funny like how much nonfiction I read when I travel actually. Mm. Yeah, I do that too sometimes. Yeah, I guess it's like you you feel like it's um you can read multiple books at the same time. You can pick it up and put it down in mm-hmm. a way that maybe you can't with uh fiction. But I in in um Stockholm I read um I re I started rereading My Struggle by Nausgaard, who's Norwegian. <laughs> but he it was kind of coincidental, but he in Stockholm we were staying at a flat uh, Airbnb place, and as I was walking around one day to go grocery shopping, and I was reading my struggle as I was walking in the in the book, Nausgaard had moved to Stockholm, and he was living on the block where our Airbnb was. Mm. 
It was pretty surreal. So he was describing the church that was right outside our Airbnb. Right. St. Johannes Church. um, So I was, but I was very much enjoying rereading Nausgaard. I was thinking how we should, we should really do a podcast about it. Yeah, that is a good one. And that takes me, actually, that, that takes me, let me, let me, let's circle back to your summer reading because I want to hear about your plans for summer reading and how you're doing on your list now that we're getting sort of toward the, the tail end of summer here. But since you brought up podcast episodes that we have to put on our list, I want to share with you a message that I received recently. This comes mm-hmm. from listener Joseph. And he writes, Mr. Wilson, I have enjoyed your podcast for the better part of a year and have been particularly taken with your more recent episodes, Milton, Dickens, and Plato. I was curious about the status of the many threats you and Mr. Palindrome have made to record an episode on Mons the Magic Mountain. Uh, (laughs) Did you catch that, that he said there were threats? (laughs) He says, while I am a mark for all things Thomas Mann, I wonder if you've considered an episode devoted to Mann the, well, the man. A fascinating man who took the literary form more seriously than virtually any other author, as well as an incredible personal life. His relationship with his son Klaus is fascinating and tragic. You are doing the Lord's work. Keep it up, Joseph. (laughs) So that's a pretty big claim. A man who took the literary form more seriously than virtually any other author. I was thinking James yeah. Joyce and Virginia Woolf and even Henry James. I'm not sure. Uh, I've, that's pretty rarefied air that he's putting Thomas Mann in there. But I guess you would probably have him there, too. Yeah, I mean, Mann was uh, a failed uh, composer. He oh, was right. classically trained and he thought of a novel as a symphony. Mm. And um, with distinct acts, act one and act two and a a reprise. And Mm -hmm. he really really felt that the first act should be Allegro and there should be an Adante. And so he has a lot of, you know, and he was very good friends with with Schoenberg. Mm. Schoenberg, I think, said that uh, Mann's ability to talk about musical theory was uh, astounding for someone who you know, wasn't a professional musician. Yeah. Well, so, but okay. yeah, we could, we could, we could definitely do, uh, I have a book on his homosexuality. I've been, I've owned for about 15 years, but I've never read. So <laughs> I'm meaning to read that. Yeah. Well, I was thinking magic mountain. Maybe we should, maybe that should be episode 1000. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> okay. So let's circle back to the, uh, your plans for summer reading. How are you doing on your list? Well, I was going to, I'm almost done with the now scarred and I'm I actually, I picked up, um, I've been meaning to read, uh, a Kingsley Amos, mm. a new Kingsley Amos. And I noticed that the New York review of books have just has come out probably in the last five years with a bunch of Kingsley Amos books. So I picked up, um, take a girl like you. Oh, so new to you, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. To me. Yeah. Right. That was. Isn't that one where he that sort of his first bitter book? I don't know. Yeah, I I, I looked at the beginning of that ending up and Girl Twenty, and that's this is the one I chose. Yeah. So I okay. started to read the beginning of it, and then um, then I'm I'm gonna I I don't know if I told you, but I read uh, Ripley, the talented Mr. Ripley, uh, in the oh, spring, and yeah. I loved it. So yeah. I picked up 
uh, Ripley's game. Oh, right. That's, right. That's the second Ripley. Yep. So I'm not I think... sure what else I was gonna. What else I want to read? What about you? What what travel books are? Oh, what summer reads do you have lined up? Um. Well, I've been uh I've been reading a bunch for the podcast, so I jumped back into Dickens and Milton and Plato. I was glad. I was really excited by Plato this time around. It was it was more fun than I was expecting or than I had remembered. Uh, and I'm reading Emma, Jane Austen's Emma. And oh, is that when's the last time you read that? Ah, uh, I think I was probably 26, 27. I remember reading it at my in-laws' house. Mm. And I've also got this book by Robert Haas that I've been dipping in and out of. Uh, oh, called, is that his essays? I think I saw it at the bookstore recently. Yeah, it's called A Little Book on Form. Yeah, and which is not a little book, right? Yeah, it's huge. Uh, <laughs> I thought that was cute. But it's good, yeah. it's. I've been enjoying that, too. Okay, so let's turn to our draft. We're going to be looking at great travel books. And I would say I have kind of a love-hate relationship with travel books. And I love to travel, and I love books. And I mm. think other people think assume that I will just love travel books because I've Love those two things. And for some reason, I dislike most travel books, even hate them. I would no, say. I, I wonder if my definition of travel books is much broader than yours. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> Let's see what happens. Yeah. Well, that's that's possible. And I was feeling that as I was looking for ideas. Yeah. I mean, you can really stretch the concept of a travel book out pretty far. Yeah, like, did you... Yeah, I guess we'll see when. Maybe you should pick first. Yeah. <laughs> maybe I'll maybe I'll maybe I'll maneuver sideways. Let me go I... first. Okay. Well, <laughs> I think the reason why there are travel books that drive me crazy is I really dislike kind of the standard. Uh, and then I went to this, I went to this place, I went to this city, I went to the this far off place, and guess what? They lost my luggage, and then the next thing I knew, I was in the taxi with this very strange person and by the time I got to the hotel there was no hot water and that kind of thing I just hate I just can't stand it you know travel books are so the author seems so full of themselves and so wrapped up in their own experience and how unusual or how strange things feel to them that it just makes me want to read a book by the actual person who's actually living there let's take a quick break then come back with our draft of the greatest travel books of all time. Okay, so you're giving me the first pick this time. Yeah, I think I I think you should. <laughs> okay. So I am going to take I'm going to double up these these two, these first two books that I'm going to take go together. So I'm going to take The Travels of Marco Polo, which is uh, was from around the year 1300. It's probably Marco Polo, obviously 
you know, this traveler who's Venetian, he's probably the most famous Venetian in history. Maybe Casanova or Vivaldi might be up there, but Marco Polo might be the most uh, household name. And he went to China. Some people actually aren't sure that he even went to China or if he just collected stories that he'd heard on his way. And what happened was he returned to Venice, which was at war with Genoa. And somehow he wound up in prison with a guy named Rusticello de Pisa, who, as it happened, was writing early Arthurian romances. Wow. And Marco Polo started telling him stories about traveling through Asia and his experiences at the court of Kublai Khan. Mm-hmm. And then this guy, Rusticello, wrote them up, which is, if it weren't for the two of them sharing a cell together we probably never would have had this book. And then it became sort of the middle, uh, a medieval version of a bestseller. And here's a guy, he went to Xanadu. He was Venetian. And he comes across in the in the book as a, an observer, a friendly, harmless observer, curious and open-minded. But it's... I don't know if it's worth reading today, but it's unless you're <laughs> you're really uh, interested in the entire thing. But it's worth dipping into, and I love the idea that this was when the world was still pretty small. You know, we think a lot about Europe not knowing about America in 1492, and here we are in 1300, and they don't even know much about China. Mm. And uh, apparently Columbus carried a copy of Marco Polo's travels with him on his journey because he thought he was going to land in China and meet a descendant of Kublai Khan. So he had the book and he had it all marked up. He had passages underlined and I guess things he wanted, he was expecting to see or, or so he would know how to behave when he first got there. So here's what he told Europe about uh, paper money coal, uh, a postal service, eyeglasses, and it's commonly thought that he introduced pasta back into Italy or into Italy uh, because of the noodles that he had seen while he was in China. But I've seen some other sources that say the Italians resist that and they point to earlier examples of written references to pasta. But they, uh, the, here's some evidence that he didn't go, some textual evidence that he never went to China is he didn't mention Chinese characters. You would think that he would refer to the writing and talk about what it looks like. Uh, he didn't. He didn't refer to the Great Wall at all. And people found it a little hard to believe that anyone who was who visited China in those years wouldn't mention that. He didn't mention foot binding, which was prominent at the time and would certainly be striking to a traveler from Europe. He didn't mention tea, and he didn't mention chopsticks, which again, chopsticks is so different. It seems like it would be so unusual and so prevalent for someone who's visiting. What would you do unless he took a (laughs) fork with him would he right. learn how to eat chopsticks? Would he eat with his hands? Sport. Uh, seems, yeah. <laughs> it seems like that would be something that you might want to comment on. But he sort of comments more on the political structure, some of the cultural rituals and things like that. And it's a it's a very solid choice. Oh, and then I'm I'm pairing it 
with the uh-huh. book uh, by Italo Calvino called Invisible Cities, which I don't know if you've ever read this book, but it's right up your alley. It's You would really love it if you read it. But it that imagines a uh-huh. set of dialogues between Marco Polo and Kublai Khan in which Marco Polo is describing the cities that he's seen along the way. And Kublai Khan is kind of disbelieving. And it's kind of a nice reversal of the Marco Polo story. But it's also really imaginative and and the descriptions of the cities and there's sort of these meditations on these different places is a just a, a wonderful little book by Calvino. Yeah, you know, I've never really gotten into Calvino, but ah. um, yeah, I, I try to read if if on a winter's night, a traveler. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I could not get into that because someone told me that that was their favorite book, and then I met another person who said that was like one of their favorite books. So yeah, that is a really good one. Cosmic Comics is really good. Uh, Invisible Cities I like a lot, and then we had a recommendation on the show for Mister Palomar which is another one that uh, I would recommend. So um, with my first pick, um, I decided to go with what I often turn to when I travel, which is uh, war books. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then two in particular are Another Day in the Life by uh, this Polish journalist, Rizard Kapuczynski, mm-hmm. which is about the Angolan Civil War. Um which uh 27 year uh civil war that um broke out after the portuguese moved uh extracted themselves extricated themselves from angola and made it independent after it, it had ruled it as a colony and it it's just uh it's an incredibly moving book um i i just find that war books are so hard to do well and so when someone can balance it with the kind of details that really bring it to life, it's, it's exceptional. Hmm. Uh, is an interesting guy because, uh, he's since passed away, but I guess it's clear from some of his other writings and interviews that he, um, took, uh, some liberties in, in, in describing the facts, so to speak. Hmm. You know, some people have attacked him. Uh, because he, you know, kind of made stuff up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I argue that it, 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 it's a way of bringing stuff to life that, um, I don't know, you get, get a lot of the details right, but some of the stuff, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I just, you uh, I just finished watching the Ken Burns, uh, oh, Vietnam War. Vietnam documentary. Yeah. Oh, man. That is, I mean, it's it's probably twenty hours, but it's yeah, it's pretty amazing, and the footage they have in there is incredible, and it's uh, the stories of the people, and it was it was really eye opening. Yeah, then, no, I, it's on my list to to watch. Yeah, did, did you have another uh, another one you wanted to pair with this one? Yeah, well, I was gonna pick your old favorite, um, Dave Edgar's is what is the what. <laughs> <laughs> about the the second Sudanese civil war, yeah. uh, which also lasted over 20 years and sort of the result of Britain. Um, well, the first civil war was with Britain uh, leaving 
Sudan and not giving equal power to different regions. Hmm. Um, but it's what is the what kind of jumps from back and forth from the U.S. to to Sudan. It, it follows this one um, refugee who's made his way, uh, a child refugee who does this incredible trek through Sudan to escape and then, uh, you know, makes his way to the U.S. And it's it, it's a beautiful story. Hmm. So. Okay. It's a good pick. I will go for my number two. I'm going to take uh, what I think a lot of people might consider the quintessential travel book, which is On the Road, Jack Kerouac, <laughs> which I know it's problematic. I know it's it's got some flaws. I know that it a lot of people have a, a dislike for the book for one reason or another, but it's such a beautiful and infectious book. It's the one that makes you want to throw everything aside and just get out there and move and meet people and and hop a train or hitch a ride and have experiences and live like a beatnik listening to jazz and and staring at the sunset. And it was, Kerouac wrote it on a, a long, continuous scroll of paper that he just kept feeding through the typewriter. He was taping these long sheets of paper together. It has that, it reads like that, even though it was edited later, it, it reads like this long, continuous fever dream and he was a good writer. He was passionate. And this is this is sort of the perfect book for him. I think it's his masterpiece. I don't think his other books, even though some people will say Dharma Bums is their favorite or will argue for his dream journals or his poetry or something. I think really on the road is is the one place where Kerouac he he got it right in a in kind of a big way. I don't know. You've read it, I'm sure, but it's it's got the Dean Moriarty is kind of the the narrator's muse. It was based on this real life figure, Neil Cassidy, who was also sort of Kerouac's muse or his alter ego. He was kind of the guy who Kerouac and others viewed as this man's man. He was a car thief. He was had been sort of lived on the streets and something about meeting him uh, transported Kerouac and and made him feel like he was seeing a, a kind of authentic Americana I think yeah I mean I I find the uh, the the story of the writing of it and as well as some moments in the the book just just packed with this kind of energy that is very inspiring. I mean, mm -hmm. you just feel like you could do anything. You could write a novel or a screenplay or just, you know, just all you need is, you know, some paper and like your friends. And But the the, the actual book I, I found disappointing, but I, I think it's because I read it too late. I read it in my late 20s. Yeah. And I, I, I think had I read it when I was 18, I would have just loved it. Yep. I read it when I was 20 and I was living abroad and it was the perfect time to read yeah. it. There's, I'll give a little passage here that I think gets some of this infectiousness. This is when uh, the narrator and Neil Cassidy go to listen to a jazz pianist named uh, George Shearing. Mm -hmm. And it says, Shearing began to play his chords. They rolled out of the piano in great rich showers. You'd think the man wouldn't have time to line them up. They rolled and rolled like the sea. Folks yelled for him to go. 
Dean was sweating. The sweat poured down his collar. There he is. That's him. Old God. Old God Shearing. Yes, yes, yes. And Shearing was conscious of the madman behind him. He could hear every one of Dean's gasps and imprecations. He could sense it, though he couldn't see. That's right, Dean said. Yes. Shearing smiled. He rocked. Shearing rose from the piano, dripping with sweat. These were his great 1949 days before he became cool and commercial. When he was gone, Dean pointed to the empty piano seat. God's empty chair, he said. <laughs> That's the kind of thing. I mean, you know, you read that and you kind of want to go to watch some jazz piano, but you also just want to go experience life. You want to be yeah. just enthusiastic for whatever, you know, being in a park or, or you know, going up the Eiffel Tower or whatever you're doing when you're on the road. You want to have that yeah. kind of enthusiasm for it. And there's also a kind of sadness in Kerouac that I think doesn't get enough credit. It's not just the the wild, raucous adventures of being on the road and the, the barbaric yawp of Kerouac's prose, but it's also about broken dreams and failure and feeling nostalgic and knowing that things are going to come to an end and getting older and all of that is uh, kind of wrapped up in there too. There's some really nice kind of twilight passages as well. You almost make me want to reread it. <laughs> well, I was going to say, but that's the thing. Summer is perfect for rereading books, I find. Yeah, that's true. Maybe because the days are long and it seems like, you know, there's more hours to just fall onto the sofa and read away. Uh, well, speaking of which, the book that I picked up the other day, and I'm, I was going to see if you wanted to reread it as well, we could do an episode on it, is The Sun Also Rises. Sure. You know, I've, I've um, probably surprised you, but I, I've read it four times. Mm. I've read it three times in my, <laughs> uh, after 30. I, I went probably 10 years between reads one and two. And then I've, I've, I've you know, I've gone back to it a number of times. Okay. We'll put that so. on the list. <laughs> All right, so my, with my second pick, I you know I started with with war, and now I'm going to um, love. And I think there's nothing better than reading kind of a love story while you're traveling. Um, I was thinking of Berlin Stories by Isherwood, which is not really a conventional love story because mm-hmm. the narrator is gay. The his intre- the love interest for the reader, if you're a guy, is Sar- Sally Bowles. And she's just a very charismatic, uh, kind of bright light. And you get this depiction of Berlin as Hitler's rising to power, where half the people are kind of signing up for oppositional parties to the Nazi party, and half the people are busy smoking hashish and partying. Mm. It's, it's just a, it's just a great historical, picture of berlin and people haven't read that um and it's very funny it's uh it's very well done in fact ishward returns to this theme again with a a very with a novella called prater violet which is about it's set in vienna and it's about a director who is making a, a film and is has this um secret past um, de- dealing with his Jewish, uh, his family, hmm. 
And again, that's, it's just, it's this perfectly encapsulated little historical moment that Ishward does so well. Yeah. Okay. So you, I see what's happening here. So you took uh, travel books, you defined it as books you like to read when you're traveling. Or I guess that transport you into oh. it. Yeah. It's right. a, like a different, it, 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 a different setting other than America. Yeah. But the narrator may or may not be... Well, I guess in this case, the narrator is also in a different setting. Yeah. The narrator is traveling as well. Okay. Although I did have like a pure... pure I, I did have a couple... I do have a couple of purely travel books. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I am going to take a book. My third book I'm going to take is a book I've never read. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have a couple on my list, yeah. <laughs> And yeah, I'll I, tell you. Yeah, I'll tell you if it's. The, I actually it's probably have more too. on my list that I haven't read than books that I have. So this is one I wanted to take because in watching this Ken Burns documentary, I, I was just flooded with nostalgia about the seventies because the thing I can't get over is how close we were to Vietnam, even though I was a kid and I wasn't really politically aware and didn't even really know about the war in the news, and it, it seemed like it had happened a long time ago mm -hmm. uh, to me as a, a seven-year-old kid, but it was, you know, only three or four years old. I mean, the ending of it was only, you know, two or three years gone by. And I had friends whose fathers had been there and, yeah. you know, we would, they'd be taking us to the movies or, you know, whatever. And just thinking about how recent that was in their past has made me kind of rethink all of the 70s. And so this book uh, popped up on my radar as I was looking for good travel books. And it's Roots, The Saga of an American Family by Alex Haley. And it reminded me of, I remember when this was on, I don't think I was allowed to watch it because I was mm -hmm. had to go to bed. But right. it just was a cultural phenomenon. I kind of can't believe how big the TV series was. So this this book, when it came out, it was it sold six million copies. It spent forty six weeks on the bestseller list, including twenty two weeks as the number one bestseller. And the following wow. year, the TV miniseries came out, and a hundred and thirty million people watched it. Which wow. is, I mean, last year a hundred and ten million people watched the Super Bowl. So it was it was bigger than the Super Bowl, but it was on multiple nights. And I can remember women and mother, you know, the mothers that were watching us and stuff, discussing it over their coffee. They'd say, you know, did you watch Roots last night? And and talk about it. And then uh, I think it kind of started this, um, or it, it represented this idea of a journey that you take to trace your origins. Mm -hmm. And there's actually a couple of travel narratives in there. There's Kunta Kinte as he's taken from West Africa at age 17 and sold as a slave. And the book shows him on the slave ship and at auction in Annapolis, Maryland. And then at the end of the book, his ancestor, Alex Haley, seven years, seven generations later, travels back to find his roots. And now, even though I think there's... um there's been some some dispute about whether it's it was factually accurate and 
and people think he probably didn't really find the village that he was looking for. And it turns out that uh, he apparently plagiarized some of the book. Um, and there's mm. other sort of problems with it as a book. I think, though, that it we probably owe to Roots this uh, fascination and, and the shows now where people use DNA and they go back and they want to know you know, who their ancestors were. And I just, I just heard that Paul Ryan was on one of those and he found out that he's has Jewish ancestors and, uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr. is sort of the, the, the guy hosting a lot of these shows and he takes people on this journey, so to speak. And it's, it's a geographical journey, but it's also a journey into the past and a journey to help understand people's present, which I think Roots is probably just a paradigmatic example of it. Yeah, I've never, I've never read it, but I, I, I remember when the show aired too, that it was, uh, everyone was talking about it. It was a big event. Yeah. And I like that it's, the title of it is Roots, the Saga of an American Family. And that it's not, there's no hyphen there. There's no adjective you know, seven generations in America is a lot longer than my ancestors have been in America. <laughs> uh, you know, it really is. Uh, it it takes you through the centuries of Alex Haley and his uh, the generations in his past. I feel like my next pick is going to be so such a lightweight. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think listeners are probably quite used to. Uh, me dominating these drafts. My picks are just, they're always so much better. But go ahead, take your number three. Well, I just have to pick a Paris book. So I just, I, I went with Down and Out in Paris and London. Oh, yeah, that's not so bad. I had that as an yeah. honorable mention. I mean, I've read probably every single Paris 1920s book out there, including cookbooks. And I've come back to gone back to down and out in, in Paris and London for yeah, just the characters in there. I mean the the the, the restaurant scenes in Paris are just so entertaining. I mean I don't know if you remember this, but yeah. I was just quoting it to a friend the other day. I said that if you're drunk, the best way to get sober is to sweat it out, sweat the alcohol out. Yeah, and that's from. <laughs> That's from a scene in Down and Out in Paris and London. All the all the the dish dishwashers and the cooks, they drink wine, and Orwell says they don't get drunk because it's so hot that they're just sweating it off. Hmm. So. <laughs> I remember that being sort of a wives' tale wisdom when <laughs> uh, when we were in college. <laughs> you know, drink a glass of water before you go out drinking, or. You sweat it out the next day, or maybe there's something to it. it. It's just a really fun book to read. And I mean, it's, uh, and also perhaps, I, I mean, I don't know about journalism classes, but I, I would, I would think that anything by Orwell overseas is kind of a, a primer on how to write about the other. Yep. I mean, he was a bit ahead of his time the way he, he wrote about exotic peoples or whatever. I mean, yeah. the locals. Yeah, and or you know when he went to the coal mine, or when he did, when he described any sort of situation that wasn't his standard milieu. Anytime he stepped outside of his own culture and social position, I think he did a 
a really good job of conveying that without being condescending or oblivious. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's so so easy to read, so yeah. relaxing to read. Yeah, Orwell is always like that. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to take for my number four then. I'll take one that fits right into this theme. It was earlier, uh, and the prose and kind of the outlook is different, but I think there's some parallels here, and that is A Sentimental Journey by Lawrence Stern who is the mm-hmm. author of Tristram Shandy. And I think this is an unusual pick. I had to read it for a class in college, and I liked it. But here's what I love about it as a travel book. So everyone in England already, even then, this is from the 18th century, but everybody was already going south on the Grand Tour. And they were, all the guidebooks and all the books that, there was a famous book that Smollett was writing, and it all, they all kind of said the same thing. They said, go visit Venice and ride on the gondola, go to Rome and visit the Colosseum. And they talked about the museums and the the paintings to go see and the statues and that kind of thing. And they were already cliches, this trip. And -hmm. these books all repeated a lot of the same things. And Lawrence Stern set out to, he he took as a, a different objective. He basically said, here's how I'm going to travel. I'm not going to do any of those things. I'm going to meet people and have experiences. And instead of the dry, stuffy, classical education where I'm trying to impress people and, and make them do all of these uh, rich cultural things, I'm going to fill my narrative with a playfulness and cynicism about the people around me and about the the idea of self-improvement and just fill it with encounters with actual people. And I think travel narratives, a lot of them really borrow from that now. And you see that in Paul Theroux and other sort of famous travel authors that they're, they're more, rather than describe for you the Mona Lisa they're more inclined to tell you about some alley where they ran into some unusual character or somebody that they, you know, they they spent the afternoon in a meat market and here's how the butcher talks and here's what they, here's what you learned when you were there and that kind of thing. I got to read it. Virginia Woolf was a big fan too. That's, uh, <laughs> I always like it when she's excited about a book. Makes me feel like it gives it a touch of class. Yeah, she had a lot of opinions, wasn't didn't she? Yeah, and she wrote a lot of introductions. She wrote an introduction to this book, and hmm. she said, A sentimental journey for all its levity and wit is based upon something fundamentally philosophic, the philosophy of pleasure. Wow. And she says... We hardly know what jest, what jibe, what flash of poetry is not going to glance suddenly through the gap which this astonishingly agile pen has cut in the thick-set hedge of English prose. We laugh, cry, sneer, sympathize by turns. Hmm. High praise from Ms. Wolf. <laughs> okay, you're up to number four. So I, I went with a, like a true travel book, which is Bill Bryson's Small oh, Island. Oh, yeah. He was another honorable mention I have, which is that's the kind of travel book I ordinarily hate. But Bill Bryson yeah. is, I enjoy Bill Bryson. I like his, 
I like his travel books. I, I like his book on Shakespeare. There's something about him that is very uh, charming, and he's got a he's got a good mix of of fact and information with kind of a light touch. I think it's. I'm surprised he. I guess to his credit, he hasn't tried to milk you know the little cottage industry he has to to write a series of um, guidebooks like um, Rick Steves. Yeah. There was a poll that said that um, BBC listeners considered that book the, the book that best represented England. Hmm. Yeah, I remember seeing that. And it's he's American, right? He is American, but he's I think he's spent more time in England than in yeah. America by now. Yeah, probably. But I remember being a little bit surprised. I thought the English would be a little more territorial and think, yeah. you know, someone's not going to get it right unless they're... But I guess... De Tocqueville is still cited as the guy who understood America better than anybody else. And maybe it, maybe you need to be an outsider in order to see things. And and he he just does such a good he has such a good style in linking the quirkiness. I think, you know, when you read some travel guides and you because he's such a mix of travel guide plus novel, because when you read travel guides with that constantly point out the differences and you get into this mindset like you're constantly comparing what you know, you, your, um, your routines to what you encounter overseas. And it's it, it's a bit of a silly way to spend your time. Yeah, right, right. Oh, the, the light switches are different. You wouldn't believe yeah. it, you know, that you don't flip a switch. You press a button and the elevators, they they say you're on the first floor, but you're actually on the that's the ground floor and you know that kind of thing yeah it's a good pick uh i am up to my last pick and i'm feeling bad because i have <laughs> three books i i think i let you i probably shouldn't have taken sentimental journey i have the number two book on my list which i have not taken yet i feel like i almost have to uh, -huh. uh which was herodotus's histories but i'm gonna skip over that <laughs> because uh, even though he was an interesting guy, he was the father of history, but he was also known as the father of lies. Mm -hmm. And he talked about all these places he had been and all of the customs there and the animals there. And people assumed that they were all myths and legends because they were so outlandish. But since then, a lot of them have been proven up. And it turns out he was he was collecting things. And, and he was such an influential travel writer. But I'm going to skip over him because I wanted to take something that was sort of personal to me. And the best trip I ever took by miles and miles was a trip I took to Tibet. Mm -hmm. And I've read a lot of books about Tibet. And a lot of them I don't like. A lot of them are too much about the person taking the journey and just don't really interest me that much. But my favorite is called The Way of the White Clouds and mm. Foundations of Tibetan Mysticism by this German... Uh, a guy who was born in Germany, he became Lama Anagarika Govinda. And he was this guy, he had a sickly childhood. He spent time in a sanatorium, which caught my eye as uh, something you sort of collect. <laughs> <laughs> sanatorium, sanitarium, sanitarium. And he became a Buddhist. He tells this beautiful story about Tibet and his trip to Tibet that really captures a lot of what it was like when I was there. He talks about going to Mount Kailas, 
which is this holy mountain that I have a photo of it over my desk. It's it's such a special place that I have trouble even talking about it. And uh, but he talks about it in a way that uh, really I find very expressive and and beautiful. But the whole book, it just let me read you a little bit of it. He says, here's where he's talking about a mountain. He says, the power of such a mountain is so great and yet so subtle that without compulsion, people are drawn to it from near and far as if by the force of some invisible magnet. This worshipful or religious attitude is not impressed by scientific facts like figures of altitude, which are foremost in the mind of modern man, nor is it motivated by the urge to conquer the mountain. There are mountains which are just mountains, and there are mountains with personality. The personality of a mountain is more than merely a strange shape that makes it different from others, just as a strangely shaped face or strange actions do not make an individual into a personality. Personality consists in the power to influence others, and this power is due to consistency, harmony, and one-pointedness of character. If these characters are present in an individual in their highest perfection, then this individual is a fit leader of humanity, either as a ruler, a thinker, or a saint, and we recognize him as a vessel of divine power. If these qualities are present in a mountain, we recognize it as a vessel of cosmic power, and we call it a sacred mountain. And it's that kind of thing. I mean, it's a little... Um, it's a little abstract, but Tibet is a little abstract. And it, you know, when he's talking about the, the white summer clouds in harmony with heaven and earth and how they freely float in the blue sky from horizon to horizon following the breath of the atmosphere, you know, it, it makes you, it makes you want to be a better person while you're there. It feels like you can have this spiritual journey that isn't necessarily tied to any kind of belief other than a belief in the beauty of the cosmos and just wanting to feel connected and wanting to immerse yourself in your surroundings, which is kind of a great, a great metaphor for any kind of travel, really. Yeah, it, it was, um, it's, a, it's a great passage. Yeah, he's a really, really great writer. He's an interesting guy. He was sort of, he was kind of mid-century, like I think he went there in the 40s. So he was sort of before going to Tibet became trendy. And then I think he was discovered in the 60s and 70s. And all of these people who were suddenly discovering Buddhism wanted him to come to California and, and things like that. But as far as I know, he always remained humble and modest and just really wanted to be on his life journey, which... Uh, took him to Buddhism and eventually took him to Tibet. Wow. So your uh, last pick. Uh, you know, I, I went with, uh, I'll go with uh, Into the Wild. Oh, yeah. That's another uh, another honorable mention I had. I, I, I just love this book. I, I even like the movie. And I know some people um, had issues with the movie. Um, you know, the, if people don't know, this, the story of this this kid who dropped out of college, Christopher McCandless, who came from a pretty well-off family. He, uh, he got into transcendentalism, got into nature, and he um, decided that he would live in the wilderness of Alaska and 
he lasted, I think, over 100 days um, eating berries, shooting game, keeping a journal. and Heavily influenced by Thoreau. Yeah, he yeah he started to develop a, a philosophy of um, you know what it means to 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 live in this world where there is technology and superficial temptations and leisure and I I love the writing um, by Krakauer. I actually read another of his books, uh, Under the Banner of Heaven. Mm, yeah, I've read it's, that too. Yeah, I mean and. And it's into, just into thin air is another good book of his. Oh yeah, you know it, it's 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 very respectful, but in, in no way does he keep the reader from passing judgment on the n- naivete of, of 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 someone who does this. Yeah, um, well, it, you... it, it, it's so well it's so well done. Every angle of a critic thinking as 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 you read this, you know. Yeah. Well, I remember, I remember reading it in the New Yorker or, you know, excerpts of it. And Mm -hmm. we were in college when it came out. And I remember there's scenes like the scene where he gets a, he, he manages to kill a deer or something or Mm -hmm. a moose or something. And, and he's so excited. He thinks this is going to save him basically. And then he doesn't exactly know how to to cook the meat and he chars it the wrong way and it's all inedible and it's it's like despair (laughs) starts to set in and and there's also a scene where he meets like a trucker who tells him to turn around you know Mm. like like you're you're not gonna make it you better turn around and he kind of plunges forward instead thinking i'm you know no he doesn't understand what i'm i'm committed to this and you just feel like he's a little too stubborn or a little too, like you said, naive. And it has this really sad consequences. But yeah, you, I mean, you're really cheering for him near the end. Yeah. Every grain or fruit and any, anything edible that he finds. I mean, I just remember as I was reading it, I was, I was so wrapped up in it as he was searching for food. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's it's a it's an incredible book. I I really should recommend it more to people. Yeah, that's a good book, good pick. Okay, so that's uh, that's our ten. I think that's a pretty good list. I've got some honorable mentions. I really wanted to take a book I haven't read called Across Asia on the Cheap, mm-hmm. which was by Tony and Maureen Wheeler. And the story is that they were this young couple who went from London to Australia in a minivan in 1973. <laughs> uh-huh. And when they finished, they said, you know, that was that was so hard. It, it, there's We could have used a lot more information. So they wrote it all out, all the stuff they had learned in the different hotels they had seen and all of that. They wrote it, they assembled it into a 90-page booklet on their kitchen table. And they wow. put an ad in some kind of trade magazine for... A dollar eighty a copy, and they immediately sold fifteen hundred copies in the first week. There was such a hunger for this kind of thing, and the next thing you know, they started their travel book series, which was the Lonely Planet series, and they sold a hundred million copies of different books before they finally sold the Lonely Planet brand to, uh, I think, a British publisher. But it just was the right, I wanted to take it because it was, 
it was the right travel guide for me when I was backpacking through Asia. It was sort of when I was in Europe, everybody had the Let's Go books, which was written by, I think, Harvard students. And that was mm-hmm. fine for college students. But Lonely Planet was felt like it was for adults and it was for adults who wanted to travel in this budget way, wanted to be respectful of the places they were. They wanted to see cultural treasures, but they also wanted to respect the people who were there and uh, get to know more about their surroundings there. And they were so good. They were so good at what they did. I think nowadays, probably people rely on the internet a lot more. I haven't I haven't been backpacking since the internet uh, became prominent. But back then, it really was. You had to have a book like this, and you would leave one country and trade that the book from the country you were leaving for someone who was on their way in who had the book of the country that they were leaving. And it was essential to have books like that. But they were also funny, and they just had the right point of view. So... It sounds like I took another pick. That's kind of a long uh, honorable mention <laughs> list. But some other things I had, I had Julia Child's book, My Life in France, uh, Lolita, which is a good travel book. Oh, yeah. Another, it's sort of like, I sort of think of that as being like an on the road because of the way they travel around America. Paul Theroux, I mentioned already. Graham Greene is a good travel writer. I put V.S. Naipaul, who just passed away. I'm not a big fan of his and um, I really, for some reason, I've never really liked his fiction. And the more mm-hmm. I've learned about him, the more I realized he was kind of a not a very pleasant human being. But I did like one of his books. When I was in India, I read this book called A Million Mutinies Now, which I thought was good. <laughs> I had Into the Woods on my list. I had Mark Twain's Innocence Abroad, which is kind of funny some funny passages about things like the German language. The Sun Also Rises is actually a travel book. Mm, Uh, Down and Out in Paris and London, you already mentioned. The Odyssey is a a good travel book. And then there's, I kind of like books like Eat, Pray, Love, and Under the Tuscan Sun, and A Room with a View, and books where people are kind of finding themselves by landing in some place like Italy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can't go wrong with Italy. So how about you? Any any books you that just narrowly missed your cut? Well, I, I was going to do some Hemingway, Martha Gellhorn. Oh, pair, pair those yeah. two together. Yeah. You know, Martha Gellhorn. The letters? The letters and also Gellhorn's essays. Um, a lot of war re- re- reportage. Um mm-hmm. In, in some surprisingly uh, remote places, um, she was in Norway during World War II when the Norwegians were trying to fight the Nazis, and she describes them deftly taking off their boots and putting on skis and right. skiing down to <laughs> fire at the Nazis on skis. <laughs> <laughs> so, and of course Hemingway, you know, with the uh, uh, Sun also rises and movable feast and yeah yeah and his I, whole I, fighting books and yeah I mean it's uh he probably did more to inspire people to travel than 
uh, you know, any yeah. directed publicity could have done. I mean, right. Yeah. Just about all of his books, really. I mean, even the ones, I mean, the, the, the books are set in Cuba or in Africa or of course Europe. Uh, but even the ones in America, they're, there's a feeling of oh you get out on the road and you go to michigan yeah and then i i was thinking more more locally i was surprised and i've never read this is john mcphee who's writing i what, what little i've read of his i love uh wrote a book on the pine barrens in new jersey mm. that um gets great reviews so i was gonna put that on my summer reading list for next year hmm I'm okay. already thinking about it next year. <laughs> okay. Well, let's leave things there. Uh, Mike, as always, welcome back. And thanks for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. My thanks to Mike, our old friend, for joining me. I hope you all sign up and listen to more shows. We have some good ones coming up. You won't want to miss them. I'm Jack Wilson. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>